Hi, everyone. Let's pray and get into God's Word. Gracious Father, we thank and praise you for our brothers and sisters down in Canberra at NTE. We pray that you'll be giving them a fruitful time in your Word this week, a time of encouragement and fellowship and sharpening and strengthening in the faith. And we pray the same thing for us here now. Please help us to read your Word in John's Gospel, to be convicted of its truth, and to trust in the Lord Jesus and live for him in light of it. We pray in Jesus' name for these things. Amen. Uh, One thing you don't want to do in life is misread signs. Uh, What is a sign? What does a sign do? A sign is something that points you beyond itself. The sign is not the reality itself, the thing. It points you to another reality or thing. Uh, This week, news headlines have featured this sign... Uh, that hasn't apparently done a good job at pointing to the reality beyond itself. Uh, The sign was unclear. This is the new Roselle Interchange. Give us a wave if you got stuck by this sign this week. Maybe, oh yeah, a few people. Uh, This is a sign that caused a lot of traffic and a lot of headaches this week, and the government quickly apologised and said they're going to change the sign. Uh, Here's another sign that I think is very unclear. Uh, You don't want to misread this sign. Uh, I think it's meant to say people slash children uh, are eating in this area, not people are eating children in this area. That's, you don't want to think about the reality that that sign's pointing to, do you? Uh, but that's what a sign does. A sign points beyond itself to some other thing or reality, and uh, you don't want to misread it, and you don't want an unclear sign. That's not going to be helpful at all. It can change the course of your life to have a wrong sign. Uh, It can impact many things in life to uh, not pay attention to a sign. Well, today, we start our summon series in the book of John. We're thinking about Jesus' signs in John's gospel. This is what we're going to be looking at over December and January. We'll have Christmas in the middle, where we'll think about the wonder of Jesus' birth and, and him coming into the world. But every other week, we'll be dipping into the gospel of John and looking at these key miracles of Jesus. You can see each of them kind of symboled on the screen there. Uh, We'll see Jesus turn water into wine. We'll see him heal the sick and make a lame man walk. We'll see him multiply the bread and fish. And finally, we'll see him raise Lazarus from the dead, uh, from the grave. I missed the walk on water and the healing of the blind man, didn't I? But there's seven there. Now, these are the big miracles John wants to show us. But the thing about John's gospel is that he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. In the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, when they talk about Jesus' miracles, they use words like miracles and power and wonders. But in John's Gospel, the Apostle John refers to them as Jesus' signs. Why does he call them signs? He wants to make that point really clear. These are miracles that point beyond themselves. These are signs that point us to something about Jesus. They reveal something. They show something of his glory. They're not simply interesting party tricks. There's more than meets the eye at first with these miracles. And John, he actually just tells us this outright. John straight up says why he's writing his gospel. He tells us what to do about it. Have a look at John 20 on the screens. Now, this is just after the greatest sign, when Jesus appears to them, risen from the dead. He shows them his hands and feet, and then John says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
But these are written, these signs that we're going to be looking at, these are written so that you may believe in the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. See, John has written down these signs. Why? So that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's promised king, the one with all authority, and that he's the Son of God, the only Son of God who reveals God to us. See, John doesn't want us to just think that Jesus was a good man. And he doesn't want us to think Jesus makes people a bit nicer or Jesus makes people a bit more moral, although these days maybe people would say the opposite to that. Uh, He doesn't want you to just be a more spiritual person, whatever that means as you read about Jesus. Uh, He doesn't want you to think that Jesus is one good way to be spiritual and that there are other ways to be spiritual. There isn't. He would, that would be to misread Jesus' signs. He doesn't even want you to just believe facts about Jesus, that, that he died, that he rose, that he lived. Even the demons know and believe that. No, he wants you to be gripped by Jesus, to put your faith in him, to trust in him, to place all of your life onto him. That's what it means to believe. It's not merely intellectual assent. It's not having a Christian heritage or a church affiliation. John is saying, here is the one who can turn water into wine. Here is the one who can make the lame walk. Here is the one who can raise the dead. He's the one who laid down his own life and took it up again. Who else can do that? No one. Jesus is unique. He's the only way, the only truth. You have to respond to him for yourself. And he wants you to believe Because that's how you're saved. He wants you to be utterly convinced and sold out that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, because that's how you receive life. Did you see that there? He says, I have written so that you may believe in Jesus, and by believing you may have life in his name. What's that life he's talking about? He's talking about true spiritual life, eternal life. John defines it as knowing the one true God, knowing the one who made you as your father. Eternal life is knowing God, the source of life. It's knowing his son, Jesus, and now living for him and living into eternity. And so as you read these signs of Jesus, as we see what these signs point to, you can come alive. You can be brought from death to life as you see his glory and who he is, And put your trust in him. And if you've already done that, if you're already alive in Jesus, if you've been born again, if you believe in him, well, then you can take joy and encouragement yet again that you have life in Jesus. You can stand in awe and wonder at who Jesus is and that through him you have life. So that's what we'll be thinking about, the seven signs of Jesus in John's Gospel. Uh, We'll think about what each sign points us to about Jesus. Uh, We don't want to misread the signs, so we're going to think about each of them. And as we read each one, we'll have that chance to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and so have life in his name. Do you want that? That's like a semi-rhetorical question. Do you want life in Jesus' name? A few people do. Good. How about more of us want that? So that brings us now to our passage for today, the wedding at Cana. This is the sign of Jesus turning water into wine. Come with me. Let's look at the story. It's not a long story, but it wonderfully shows us who Jesus is. 
So look at verse 1 with me. We learn there, that, uh, we learn that, uh, there where this wedding is and who is there. So look at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. And as far as we know, Cana was a teeny tiny village in Galilee, just not far from where Jesus lived and grew up in Nazareth. This is where he lived, still to this point of the story. Uh, we don't get to meet the happy couple who are getting married that day, um, but we do get to meet some of the guests. We'll look at who's invited in verse 1 again. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. Now, this is important. Uh, this is the first time we meet Mary, Jesus' mum, and we learn about their relationship. Uh, but did you notice, Jesus also has some disciples there. Now, that might sound a bit weird for Jesus to have brought a whole crowd of disciples and crashed a wedding, right? But that's actually not what's happening because at this point, Jesus doesn't have a big crowd following him. This is very early. This is before Jesus has kicked off his public ministry. So it could have just been four or five men following Jesus at this point. But here they are at the wedding. What are they doing? Eating and drinking and celebrating for many days. And then tragedy strikes. A problem arises. It's like a wedding day disaster. Uh, have you ever had a dinner party that went terribly? I'm sure many of us have lots of stories there. A dinner party disaster. His laptop fell down. Sorry, Joel. So hopefully it wasn't me being too enthusiastic that, uh, that did that. It's okay. Um, where are we at? Dinner party disasters. I'm sure you have many good stories. Uh, me and Sarah have lots of those. Uh, we actually almost had one this week. Uh, so this week at our 6:30, this week we had our 6:30 church gospel team leaders over for dinner and, and to, to kind of celebrate the end of the year. And what happened? Well, we planned to cook chicken in the oven and we planned to cook potatoes in the oven. But what happened? Well, we put all the chicken in the oven and then we realised the oven was full and there was no room for the potatoes. Uh, we couldn't cook the potatoes. The meal was going to be super, super late. But with some creative thinking and with the, thanks, uh, with the, the help of Avril, who ducked into the shops uh, on the way, we were able to convert the potatoes into potato salad instead of baked potatoes. So let's thank Avril for that. I'm thankful to you, Avril, uh, that we got to eat our meal not an hour late, just a little bit late. Uh, and that was wonderful. Now, the worst-case scenario for us would have been eating a little bit late and going a little bit hungry. But not so with this wedding. See, look down at verse 3. The wine runs out. Now, that's a massive deal. See, wine is often seen as an essential part of celebration in many cultures, even today. And it would, be, it would have brought great shame on that family. It would basically bring an abrupt end to the wedding and everyone would go home. Because it wasn't that easy to provide clean drinking water or wine for that many people at short notice. You couldn't just go down to the bottle uh, It was hard to provide. And there also may have been legal and financial uh, consequences if this family couldn't provide for their guests. And this is where we get to see the relationship of Mary and Jesus. See, what does Mary do? She feels for this host family. Uh, maybe she thinks she has an obligation to help. But what does she do? Well, she goes to Jesus. And all she says is, they don't have any wine. They've run out. Now, it's hard to know what she expected Jesus to do. Um, at this point, Jesus hadn't been doing any miracles yet. But maybe she just goes to him as like the man of her house. He was the eldest son, and so maybe he can do something about this situation. But Jesus' response 
Isn't it a little bit off-putting? Look at verse 4. What is this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Now, when Jesus says woman there, uh, in that culture, it wasn't a rude way of speaking like it might be today. Uh, It was more like addressing a woman as ma'am for us, or as they say in all the English TV shows, mum, which which sounds like mum, and so I always get confused when I watch English TV shows. Uh, But it's like the word ma'am at that point. But I think it's still striking, isn't it, that he doesn't call her mother. He calls her woman. It's like he's distancing himself from her and from the situation. And then he says that cryptic sentence, my hour has not yet come. What's going on there? I think there's two things. First of all, Jesus is showing us that he has a higher priority than even his mother. You see, all through John's gospel, Jesus just keeps on saying things like, I have come to do my Father's will. God, my Father in heaven, I've come to obey him, to do his work, to reveal him. He and I are one. And maybe here, there's just that first hint of that. Jesus does the will of his Father first, even over the will of his mother. And Jesus is an example to us in this, isn't he? Yes, we love and care for and honour our parents, Uh, even uh, in all sorts of ways. We care for them into old age. Jesus actually demands that of us. But as you see, but, but, but if you think about it, that's actually the point. We do it because God calls us to. And so our allegiance, our loyalty is to God first. We love our parents, we honor them because he calls us to. And so that means most of the time, uh, most of the time we listen to, we respect our parents, uh, but sometimes that means we need to choose to honor God above them. And so it means we won't do what our parents might like or want, but we need to put on, we, we need to take God and his priorities first. Now that requires a whole lot of humility and wisdom, doesn't it? And we pray that God gives us the wisdom in those times. So Jesus, he, he's saying here, Mary, I love you as my mother, I honor you, but my father in heaven comes first and that's kind of what he's talking about when he says my hour has not yet come this is the second thing we see here what is that hour that hasn't come for jesus again all through john's gospel we read jesus and john talking about the hour or jesus time and it's the time when he is glorified it's the time when he's lifted up and crucified And then he is lifted up and raised to life and raised to sit at God's right hand in heaven. That's the hour that that God the Father sent his Son into the world for. That's why he was sent. It's the hour he was born for. This is what Jesus is set on, even over and above what his mother might ask of him. So Jesus is saying, Mary, I haven't even begun my public ministry yet. My hour of glory is is a long way off. He's saying, yes, I might have some disciples here, but I'm not here to make a big scene. I'm not here to do something big in public. My time is not yet. But Mary is having none of that. Look at verse 5. Do whatever he tells you, she says to the servants, the servants who are serving the meal. Now, I don't know exactly what Mary expected of him, but that leads us to the sign, to the miracle. See, Jesus' hour has not yet come. There's, there's not, it's not time now for a big show, but he still does what his mother asks. But he does it privately, not in public. Let's look at it. Look at verse 7. 
There were these big stone jars nearby. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they, the servants, did. Verse 8, Then he said to them, Now draw out some and take it to the chief servant. And they did. And then, by the time that it got to the chief servant, it was no longer water, it was wine. So look at verse 9. When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Do you see, do you see who, who's aware of the situation? Only the servants. Only Jesus' disciples, those few disciples with him. Only they know what's going on. The chief servant, he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know where the wine came from. So what does he do? He calls the groom and says, how did you get this amazingly good wine this late into the feast? Look at verse 10. He says, everyone, who's, everyone sets out the, first wine, the, the fine wine first, then after people have drunk freely, the inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. You see, it was the custom of that day at a feast or at a wedding to serve the best wine first and then the less good wine a little bit later after everyone had drunk a bit too much to notice the taste. But this wine, late in the party, it's spectacular wine. But no one knows where it's come from. Only the servants, only Jesus' disciples. This was a covert miracle of Jesus. His hour had not yet come, so it's under wraps. But that doesn't mean it had no impact. Because look at verse 11. This is the key verse here. John describes what happens in the end. Read it with your own eyes. Look at verse 11. It says, Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. That handful of disciples, say five, give or take a few, they didn't just see a great party trick that day. They didn't just see a wedding day saved. What they saw was the glory of Jesus. They saw something of his majesty and his goodness and his splendor. They saw something of God's glory in him. And what did it cause them to do? Believe in him. Because that's what you do when you see Jesus' glory. You acknowledge it. You put your trust in him. You believe that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, the really funny thing about this miracle is that it was done on the quiet. Uh, only a few people saw his glory and believed in him that day. But we have it written here for us as one of Jesus' most famous miracles in the most famous book in history. So now everyone knows, or many people know, about the wedding at Cana, the, the miracle of water turned to wine. Uh, in our culture today, this miracle, sometimes it's like the only thing that people even know about Jesus, which is horrible. Um, but this, we have this now famous miracle before us. Or more importantly, we have this sign. And so we have to ask, what does the sign point to? What does the sign point to? What does it show us? What does it reveal to us about Jesus? What do we see about Jesus' glory here? Because that's what John is concerned about. So have a look there at, uh, at the verses. What we're going to do is dig a bit more and see some of the things that show us these things. So what we see is, first of all, what does it show us about, what does this sign show us, that water turned to wine? What does it reveal to us about Jesus? Well, there's a few things in this passage that show us why Jesus did this. The first thing it shows us 
is actually the same as every other miracle of Jesus. It shows us that he is the one with power and authority. Jesus is the one who Jesus is the one who is one with God the Father. He has the same power and authority the Father has. He's the word made flesh. All things were created through him and so he has authority over the things he's made. And so without even a word, without a touch, we, we don't know how Jesus did it. Maybe it was just a thought. He transformed water into beautiful tasting wine. See, this sign points to his power and authority. Do you see his glory here? Do you believe in him? Are you amazed by Jesus, by his power and authority? Don't take this miracle, this sign for granted. But also don't just leave it there because this miracle is not a mere party trick. And it doesn't just show us his power and authority. You actually misread the sign if that's all you see. Because the second thing it shows us, then this is the big thing it shows us is that he's the one who brings the abundant and overflowing grace of God. How do we see this? Well, there's again a few things in the passage that help us see this. Let's look at it again. Keep your Bible open for this last part. Now keep your mind switched on. The first question we need to ask is, why wine? Why did Jesus make wine? What is it about wine? And what's it a symbol of? You see, a faithful Israelite knew that wine, that an abundance of wine, was a symbol of God's grace, God's blessing. See, in times of God's judgment, he would he'd pour out his judgment on his people, Israel, and he would put famine upon them. And the grapes wouldn't grow and the wine would run out. There would be no joy, no celebration. But then he promised to restore them and save them and that their vineyards would grow and that there would be an abundance of wine and so they would eat and drink and be glad and rejoice in God again. This comes up over and over again in the Old Testament. We read it before in Isaiah. What did it say? It was looking forward to God's promise of salvation, of restoration, and it pictured a feast of finely aged wine. Or look at this other example in Amos chapter 9 on the screens. Amos says, Hear this, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the one who treads grapes, the sower of the seed... The mountains will drip with sweet wine, and all the hills will flow with it. It's this beautiful poetic language. What's it saying? It's saying you, God's people, will be so blessed that you will have so much wine that you won't know what to do with it. You have so much wine that it will kind of like flow through the countryside and drip off all the mountains. And so this is what Jesus' sign points to. It's this picture of God's abundant grace and blessing and salvation and that they have come in Jesus. We see it in more of the detail of the story. Let's look at a few more verses. Look at verse 6. It says, Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. So here, these, these massive water jars are there for God's people to purify themselves, to cleanse themselves before God. Whenever they came in an hour of their house or when they ate, they'd wash their hands or other parts of their body. But now, instead of water for these cleansing rituals, now they're full of wine. What is that saying? It's saying whatever you used to do to be purified and cleansed before God, that's done and dusted now. Any Old Testament law for ritual cleansing, forget it, because now how are you cleansed? Jesus. 
And any man-made rule for, 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 that people can come up with for being purified or cleansed because of the Jews, they came up with all these extra rituals for being clean. Uh, but what good are they now? None. Because Jesus the purifier is here. The old has gone, the new has come. This is just one of those hints again that, that points forward to what Jesus would do to purify and cleanse us of our sin. He would take the punishment for our sin on the cross so we could go free, forgiven, and clean. It's what we prayed for in our confession prayer at the beginning of the service. Have a look at 1 John 1 on the screens. This is the same John who writes these words. He says, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses or purifies us from all sin. So do you see Jesus' glory? He's the one who purifies us from our sin. Abundant grace is found in him. Do you believe in him? But there's more glory than that. Have a look at verse 6 again. Look at the end of the verse. It says, Each jar contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars, Jesus said. So they filled them to the brim. See, the incredible thing about this miracle of Jesus is just how much wine he made. Six huge jars filled to the brim, 20 or 30 gallons per jar in our measurements. That's a total of something like 600 litres of wine or 800 bottles. God is not a killjoy. Jesus is not stingy in any way. He pours out God's grace on us. That's what the sign is pointing to. It's his abundant, overflowing grace and generosity. God meets all our needs in Jesus. He pours out his grace on us. We have every spiritual blessing in him. Every promise of God is yes in Jesus. Do you see his glory as the one who brings all God's generous, abundant, overflowing blessings and grace? Do you believe in him? But there's more. Remember verse 10. Uh, the chief servant said, but you have kept the fine wine until now. See, the blessing and grace of God is like fine wine, uh, not the cheap, nasty stuff, not like box wine or cask wine. Sorry if you like drinking that stuff. When I was growing up, it was called a goon bag. I don't know if it's still called a goon bag or not. Um, but what Jesus brings is not a goon bag. What Jesus offers us is not second class. It's the very best that God has to offer. And so do you see Jesus' glory? Because what this sign points to is that salvation and restoration are here. Jesus, the Savior and Restorer, is here. So what do you do when you see the glory of Jesus? You believe. See, the disciple of Jesus sees Jesus' glory and then believes in him. So John, here, he puts out that invitation. Do you want to become a disciple of Jesus? Do you want life, life eternal in Jesus' name? Do you want all the promised blessings of God? Do you see Jesus in all his glory? Then believe in him. Turn to him. Believe that he's the Messiah, the King, the Son of God. And if you believe, you will have life. You will have real and true spiritual life in Jesus. He's the only way. And for the many of us who already have this life, who already believe 
and have life in Jesus, then, then do you recognize just what you have in Jesus? Do you rejoice in his glory? Do you see and, and rejoice in his glory again, even now that your sins are washed clean? He has purified you. You have God's overflowing and abundant grace in him. You know the creator of everything as your heavenly father. You stand in all the blessings and promises of God that the Old Testament people of God were waiting and yearning for, and yet we have them. They are ours. Now is the day of salvation in Jesus. How can we not rejoice in Jesus for all of this and be gripped by him and love him? Let's pray that we would do that. Our gracious Father, what wonder and joy that we have when we think of what, who Jesus is and as we see his glory here in these words. Father, we thank you that in turning water to wine, he showed us that all your abundant blessings can be found in him, that all your promises of life and salvation, freedom from death and sin and eternal life in your new creation are all found in the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that he died to purify us of our sin. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe in him and continue to believe in him and so rejoice and be gripped by him and so live for him. We pray in his name. Amen.